Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin. I'm your host. And today our guest is Dr. Brooke Keels. Dr. Keels holds a PhD in marriage and family therapy. She works to create, implement, and oversee the partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program and individual and family therapy programs at Lighthouse Recovery Texas. She has worked in the recovery industry in a professional capacity for over 15 years in a variety of clinical and leadership roles with a focus on clinical training and program design. And today we're going to talk about the family's role in recovery and family therapy specifically from a systems perspective and how it is so important for each family member in a system that has addiction doing their own individual work to get to a place of health for the whole system. I love Dr. Keel's passion for her work and her willingness to bring her whole self to the process. So I think you'll get a lot out of this interview, just looking at this from a systems perspective and how everyone can work towards health so that they can be happy and thrive. And don't forget, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. I really appreciate it. That really does help the podcast get found by others. So thank you all who have done that. It just means a lot to me. And if you want to find more out about The Addicted Mind, you can follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out as well. And stay tuned for this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Brooke Keels, and we're going to delve into a topic that we've had a few guests on lately in the in the podcast, and that's about family therapy when it comes to addiction and the role of getting help for the family in the addictive process and treatment and all that kind of stuff. So, but first, I'm just going to have Dr. Brooke Keels introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about you and yeah, let's just jump in. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And, and please call me Brooke. I do tell people if you did your doctoral work, right, you never want to talk about it again. So if we <laughs> right. just go by that, that would be great. Right. But yeah, so I do I have a master's in counseling psychology and a PhD in family therapy. And that was not my intent, but I'm very grateful that that was my process. My dad was a psychologist, and so he kept pushing that way, and I ended up going the other in right. some ways. And and uh, it's been such a blessing and was able to study with just some incredible minds in the field. And anyway, through that, ended up in academia, overseeing like accreditation and teaching and and all of that, and was invited to run an addiction treatment center and build the program from the ground up. And it was adolescent and young adult males. And this was, gosh, years ago. And uh, that was really where my passion for program design came in. And then also, you know, as a therapist, if somebody says, write the program and it can be whatever you want. Okay. Right. <laughs> so that was quite incredible. And so just really put an emphasis on the family work. And so the policy was the only way that your son would be discharged from our program outside of something heinous would be if the family was not involved, because we really believed that the family involvement could really expedite healing, especially dealing with adolescents, of course. And we just saw some incredible things happen through that process. And I've clung to that ever since. And so I've been been in this field about 15 years and just 
gosh, maybe almost 16 now, and uh, just really passionate about that work. And so then was executive director for a nonprofit facility that was all women. It was international and dealt with a lot of intense trauma trafficking situations. So a lot of trauma work for years there, and then had the honor of being at Lighthouse Recovery in Texas. Uh, our co-founder, Mike, and I met actually years ago when I was running that addiction treatment center. And you know, when you just meet people and you're like, right. are we best friends? Like immediately? <laughs> so Like you just uh, feel that bond. Just feel like it. And we, just, we gel together. Yeah, just that same heart for, for treatment and knowing what's happening and caring for people just so well. It was just incredible. So we stayed friends, would talk, you know, a few times a year. And then I had an opportunity to come work for Mike and, and John, our other co-founder. And and this is, unless they kick me out, this is where I will be for all time here in Dallas. So, yeah, so that's just a little history from that aspect. All right. It sounds like you you really love your work and it's really important to you. And you mentioned something earlier, just as you were talking like this organizational approach, this this program approach, and then the importance of the family in that, like so much so that if the family isn't involved, they're not going to be part of the treatment. So I want to get into that part because a lot of I think a lot of people who may be struggling with a family member that is in the throes of addiction, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, you got to go get help. But there's this whole system that right. probably has to be address. So how how did you start to come to that? And how did you start to see like this was this is really important? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. And if I if I make this too weird or academic, please, I'll, I'll try not to. But it's just, I just see all of us exist within a system, right? All of us exist within relationship. I think being mammals, we are connected and we are attached. And we begin to exist in this world with other people and we all play a role, whatever that is. And when that role is sick or unhealthy, everything adjusts based on kind of the urgency of need, if you will. And often your loved one on illicit substances is pretty, you know, urgent and there's a need. And and then based on our experiences with, you know, parents, with their parents, and, you know, we all address things differently. And so you kind of get this interesting amalgamation of everybody just trying to function and I think do the best they can with what they have. But it doesn't always end very well when we're trying to do it within our own selves. And I think a core component of of unhealth with substance use especially is isolation. And what I see is that that the person struggling with addiction may isolate themselves, but the families do as well for a million different reasons. And so you kind of just circle the wagons and it's just this kind of big ball of unhealth. And and it doesn't have to be that way because there are people there to to help that process. But that's just what I've seen overall. And so when we can intervene in that system, when we can disrupt it a little bit, when we can allow you know, maybe mom or dad or siblings to heal from some things while the person going through substance use treatment is healing as well. And we can really build relationship. And then there's the other side of it that sometimes people's families, you know, we're waiting for someone else in our family to get healthy before we do. And right. I, I just have a core belief that if our health and freedom is based off of anyone else's health and freedom, then we're never going to have that. And so can we be healthy within our own right to the best of our ability and not wait on others to do what's right for us to be okay, if that makes any sense? 
No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like we, we have to practice that self-care mm-hmm. because I think like what you were saying earlier, if we're a piece of that system mm-hmm. and we're not healthy, even if we're not the one who is struggling with the addiction directly, then the system isn't healthy. Right. Yeah. And it right. learns to just live that way. And sometimes we don't even realize it. And often it's a slow burn too. Right. You know, I've, I've had so many families just look up and say, you know, we didn't even, we just didn't even realize like we, you know, you kind of, sometimes you're just in chaos or it's just, you take those quick moments of we had a good family dinner. So I thought everything was okay. You know, and it's not that they're not meaning to see, but you know, we take the wins as parents too. <laughs> you know, we, right. we take it and we take it all the way. And so, right. you know, or, or they were trying to disrupt their own pattern. I've had, you know, so many dads that were like, I came from nothing. So I worked so hard to give them everything and they're not grateful for it. You know, and I've had to say, well, sure, because they didn't live in poverty, they don't have anything to compare it nothing to. to compare it to yeah right? and and so just even switching that mindset adjusts maybe how mom and dad communicate maybe more in shame because they're hurt that son doesn't appreciate what they've provided right potentially and and we can even just shifting some of that language can free up their son you know to not feel so in so much shame potentially yeah can you talk a little bit more about that because what i hear what you're saying is often the system doesn't see itself, so to speak. It right. can't see like what's going on and it can't see what's happening. And I think that's a, an important part where family therapy comes in because we're kind of, I guess, sometimes like blind to to our own situation. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, again, you know, and people may disagree with me, but I believe that's why we're meant to live in community and accountability just in general, whether that's with, you know, counselors or friendships or, you know, whatever that looks like, because you can't see yourself even, you know, I mean, you've met so many people. It's like, oh, that's really great insight, but we still cannot always be aware of how our actions impact and affect other people in the same way as when someone kind of from the outside goes, hey, do you notice when you said that, that they really kind of withdrew from you or just the nuances of interactions that we don't always pick up on. And, and I know I said it before, but I really do believe everyone's doing the best they can with what they have. And so it it has to make sense to you to keep moving a certain way. Sometimes it's to protect yourself. Sometimes it's to protect something you think you need to protect, you know, but often it is self-preservation, trying to do what you, everything you can and it, it just doesn't always work that way. And so when you can step into family therapy, it's it's pretty incredible how often it 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 doesn't take that much for a system to kind of shift. But we do resist change. We are comfortable with what we're comfortable with. And the concept of seeing something new or different is is can be difficult. I think that's one of the best things about being a therapist is we kind of get to be that hope bearer. Of like, right. you know, like, let if let's just try this. Sometimes, you know, I have one of my favorite things is, okay, just consider that maybe I know what I'm talking about and we could, <laughs> we could try this and let's just see what happens. And even if they will just trust at that level, even that in and of itself is a shift, you know? Right. And so anyway, and so that's, yeah. Did that answer your question? Okay. I, yeah, I think so. And, and also, you know, I'm wondering as you're talking, because to do this kind of work, 
You've got to be able to, you have to have this desire to want to look at it. You have to have this desire to kind of dig in and understand it. And I'm wondering how for you, this passion started to to grow and be so important to you. Yeah, this is a long story. So I'm going to make, all my stories are long. So I will make make this as short as possible. Yeah. So when I was in my master's program, uh, deeply rebelling against my dad and not going to medical school, I had basically a choice. I could take uh, an elective for play therapy or family therapy. And at the time I was like, children are the worst. I don't want to do that. So I (laughs) took family therapy and the professor that taught that class, adjunct professor, and he ended up thankfully, his name is Tom Moore, ended up being my mentor is till this day. And he began teaching, you know, structural and strategic theory and modern systems theory. And I remember just like looking at this and, you know, take this, however, you know, you take it for God of your understanding. But I was like, this is how God thinks. (laughs) Like we're all connected. And it was just kind of this ridiculous. It's like a light bulb went off. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can see this. It changed everything for me in that moment of just how I see the world and even just the passion I could have for people. And so at the time I was, you know, I tend to be a little bit of a workaholic. So I had like four internships and I was even working with kids with autism as an ABA therapist. And I was seeing like, you know, the divorce rates of these families is like 85%. I mean, it's really high. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, let's sit down, you know? And so even just the communication of getting mom and dad, understanding that they don't have to be on the same page, but what if they had the grace for each other, for each other to figure out how to get on the same page? And so we just got to do all this incredible work there in really volatile situations. And and these, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways and seeing families come together. And then I, through all of this, um, I did a petition to have my mentor teach the second MFT class. (laughs) So this class, no one wanted to do it. I did potentially bully everyone uh, into signing up for it. And that I was okay with that. Awesome. Um, he also did not know he was my mentor yet. I did inform him <laughs> he <wasn't>. later. Yeah. <laughs> it's later. Um, but he taught a book, Aesthetics of Change, written by Bradford Keeney. And it is one of the most beautiful works in my mind of modern systems theory. And Brad Keeney studied under Gregory Bateson and really took cybernetic theory and applied it to therapy. And so I convinced my husband to move to where Brad Keeney lived. And I worked with Brad Keeney. And he <laughs> then uh, became the endowed professor at the university and brought me on to study with him. And so then I was able to study with him and just dive into to all of those just interactions and how to disrupt things in creative ways and not be bound by just diagnoses. And, you know, what if we saw the system as alive, right? What if we saw it and understood our role in it too, and how we change it and it changes us. And, and so that's, I've studied with him. And and so it's just kind of gone from there, but yeah. So that was the short, short. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, no, that's great. It sounds like you know, that light bulb went off for you and you had this paradigm shift where you could step out and see the system. And then with that, with the passion for helping others, you know, take that to to the work that you do, right? Like, yeah. here, let me help you see the system because if you can see the system, you can change it. You can do something with it. 
Yeah. I think it feels less overwhelming when it's, when you notice it's, it's just an interaction, right? It's not as devastating as it maybe feels like, you know, and and so it, it, I think sometimes it just relaxes people's hearts and minds a little bit. If we can point out those things and cause people are not usually trying to hurt each other, you know, and if they are, they can go, I don't want to want to hurt him. Okay. Well then now we can talk about forgiveness and, the pain that it's caused and what that looks like and grief and what that looks like. And, you know, we can get to those deeper things through that and it doesn't feel so overwhelming. So when you're working with a family and maybe they're coming in and, you know, they have this kind of dysfunctional system going on, they can't really see it. How do you help them start that process of opening their mind to this new paradigm. One of the things that I, we have, and I've, I'm very passionate about this too. And, and we do it, I think incredibly well at lighthouse is that we build a lot of rapport on the front end before anyone ever even walks into the therapy room. And so Based on how our program works, we have this opportunity to to know this family, to have interactions with them, not just from the clinical side, but with like case managers and, you know, with the clients. And so we are able to kind of identify the patterns that are already there. And as much as possible, before we even walk into the therapy room, we try and disrupt them. And so that we potentially have an even, even if it's just a smidge healthier or just a smidge more open, that family is walking in ready for the interventions that are about to take place. And and I know you know this, gosh, more than anybody, rapport is everything. And so that's yeah. kind of what allows us to to live another day sometimes, you know, and that was that was one of the things again that that my mentor taught me was if all else fails, build rapport. And that was something as a new clinician that I just worked so hard in because then then they'll go with you on this journey because they trust you at some level. They may think you're weird or they may be like, I don't know why we're doing it, but they said do it. (laughs) So talk a little bit about rapport. I know like Mm -hmm. if we're trained in therapy, we're always talking about rapport, rapport. But for someone who, you know, is is coming into this situation, rapport, what does that mean? Like you're going to build rapport? Like what does that look like? Yeah, I and I'm sure there's some beautiful definition for it that I don't have, but I will tell you how I how I gauge it at least. You know, rapport is about connection and it is not that we both like Snickers, right? Rapport is that there's this understood thing that we're going to trust each other in this moment. I may ask some questions and, you know, and you're going to give me some answers and they're trusting me that I'm going to ask the right questions, that there's an intentionality to this moment that we have together. And I think often and you, I can't remember who said this, so please, but I think it's in um, Tactics of Change, where I think it's Don Jackson. If I'm wrong, somebody judge me, that's fine. But he said, there's no resistant clients, only resistant therapists. And so I always like to walk into it with that mindset. If somebody is resistant to me, then I don't have the rapport that I need. So it's just paying attention to, are they with me? I love that statement, because I think that that's so... I think it's so invaluable because so much of my work when when I was in the beginning of this field, I worked with a lot of clinicians, kind of that old school style of of Mm -hmm. addiction treatment. It's like, well, they're not ready. Too bad, you know. 
And I always didn't, I just never felt comfortable with that. And I think everybody's ready. Everybody wants a better life. Everybody wants to feel better. That's just how we are. So yeah, I think that offers uh, clinicians an easy way out when they, when they say, oh, the client's resistant instead of looking at, Hey, how can I do this better? How can I make this rapport to bring this client into change? Right. And then if they choose of their own volition not to participate anymore, at least you can look back and go, I did everything. I gave it everything I got. Maybe it needs to be somebody else, you know, but we at least as a team spend a lot of time if they're like, man, he's just not connecting. Okay, then what are we doing? And if we take that first and how often is somebody dealing with substance use or a family, right? They're expecting blame. Right. And what if yeah. we take responsibility first and we can hold somebody accountable, by the way, that's not, you know, grace is not enabling. We can hold somebody accountable and also take ownership for, for our part in it. And, and it can be as simple as just noticing, you know, when you give them an assignment, are they actually following through with it? Are they, you know, doing it the way you said, are they modifying it? Are they just not doing it at all? Like there's just these small ways that we can really gauge rapport because there's also often people, you know, we get our people pleasers in there. And I remember I had this one client he was like, I just really like you so much. Like, you're just so great. I like you so much. And it was about the third or fourth week. And I was like, well, you haven't done one thing I've asked you to do. So I don't really know <laughs> that right. your liking me is actually all that beneficial. And that's super nice. But if, you know, you die at the end of this, I don't know. I can say, well, at least he really, really liked me. You know, that was great. And so he was like, what? So we were able to kind of dig in, but he did not do one, kept telling me how great I was, how much he liked me, did not do one thing I asked. Well, then that's not rapport that he liked me, you know? And so, yeah. So just kind of trying to focus on, are we intentionally moving forward? Is there progress? And if there's not, look at ourselves first as clinicians and what do we need to do? And, And sometimes that's rapport with seven people in the room. So doing a lot of work on that front end, if we're going to have a huge family session, we need rapport with everybody and knowing that that all might be in different places, too. And so managing that nuance is really fun for me, actually, and maybe strange that I feel that way, but I do love it. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, you know, if, if you work in the mental health field, being able to do that is also being able to be on the other side of it, which is positive change, seeing a, people being able to thrive and grow. And that's just so rewarding and such a great feeling to see people get to the other side. So I totally understand that. I love that too. Let's talk a little bit just about like for a family out there, why this piece is so important for long-term recovery and and healing. Yeah. I just, you know, I know there's always exceptions to this, but I see the family healing together is what supports an overall growth mindset for everyone involved. I, I, I very often see, you know, someone may come to our program and they're doing all of this work and they're getting really, really healthy and the family is not doing any work. And so all of a sudden all of their stuff comes out and they don't know what to do with any of that, you know, and it's an interesting discrepancy when you see somebody who has maybe burned everyone's life to the ground and it's been really terrible, but they've now invested six months in treatment and they've done all this work and they're actually walking out this healthier person. And and then they realize like, oh, I have 
better coping skills than my family. And, the, and, and then the family's disappointed because the reconciliation, they put all of that on the person dealing with, right, the identified problem. And so this idea that, well, when that person gets better, then we'll all be fine. That's just not how life works. And so when families engage in treatment, what's so incredible is, number one, you get to be healthy on your own no matter what anybody else does, like we mentioned, she also get to be healthy as a family system. And, and I think break the generational things that all of us want to leave. We want to have legacies of health in our family. There's going to be grandkids, there's going to be, you know, siblings or, you know, whatever it is that we want to, to break that pattern and have a, a new pattern for, for the next generation. But when families choose to be involved, it's just, I don't know, it's just, again, it just expedites the process so much quicker as well. And it allows things to be real and genuine. And, you know, because sometimes, too, we'll have we'll have families that they're they're willing to come and do all the therapy that but they want us to be their therapist. And so then that's a boundary we have to set and really differentiate. You've got your own healing and grieving and forgiveness to walk through. And this is not all going to be that right. This is just a little piece of it, what we're doing right here. And so I think even just really providing an opportunity for someone to get healthy on their own in spite of whatever's happening around them and and really interrupting that codependency that happens when it's your kid or your spouse or I mean that which is a natural thing to do disrupting all all of that is is I just think really powerful yeah yeah definitely and as you're talking I was wondering about how this looks like you know a family that moves from maybe this dysfunctional system that doesn't really support health and mental health to a system that is the opposite of that, what might that look like? What might be different in a family that has engaged in therapy, has worked through some of these issues? How would that show up? I think it shows up, but the first thing that comes to mind is trust. I think there's a trust for the treatment professionals because I think you need a lot of support. And depending on where your loved one is at in the process, they may be very resistant at that moment, you know, and 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 kind of trying to find their way. And so there's, you know, some of the, the nasty stuff that comes out, the manipulation or the attempts at, you know, all of that. But I talked to a mom this morning and she just, you know, she said, he, my son called and he said these things. I don't think they're true. You know, you guys told me to let you know, and I pointed him back to you. Right. What a beautiful thing. And what she told me, she's like, I, I actually slept last night. Right. Right. And it's like, yeah. And she's like, and I don't know the last time I did that. Like for our, us to be able to, to rest as a, as a parent or a spouse or, or whatever is just a huge part of this too. And even that we don't even know what we want sometimes in that process because it's so much. And she was like, I was able to sleep and it felt good just to be equipped to know. That's all I knew is I needed to say, well, you need to call X, Y, and Z. You know, it like, and I, I had a response and I could just leave it at that and just be at rest. And I didn't stay up all night wondering and I didn't, you know, and so I think trust is a piece of it. The other thing, too, is is that the families that tend to connect and, and really grow through this process are the ones who, and, and most of, I want to point out, most of the people we work with have had multiple failed treatment episodes. So this isn't like their first go round and they're just in right. rose colored glasses, like, oh, everything's great now. You know, this isn't that, like they have been burned. But it's also the ones who can see a light at the end of the tunnel that will allow themselves to carry a little bit of hope. And, and often that is us pointing it out. 
you know, what does hope actually look like? Because if it's just that this person, again, will just never do anything wrong again, we can't guarantee that. So let's really define what you're putting your hope in. Let's really define what a healthy relationship with someone who struggles with substance use looks like. And often it is caring for yourself first and and being able to set boundaries in a healthy way. And so I think the rest that comes through that too gives people the energy to continue to healthily deal with the ups and downs of, of, you know, what their loved one may be dealing with. And, and, and then some other stuff comes out and often it's just the people that are like, Hey, we just want to be healthy and we have no idea how to do that. There's just a submitted place of just, what do we got to do? And and we don't know how to communicate. We don't know what boundaries are. We don't know what we have control over and don't have control over. And it's just a, a mess. Exactly. Exactly. But they're like, but we think you might can help us. We're like, great, let's do it. <laughs> if you're open so and too. you're ready, yeah. let's let's go and, and try this. You know, if you have that, yeah, like you said, that little piece of hope, we can do something with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can work towards change with that. Yeah. What about when, you know, family therapy doesn't work? I mean, you know, there's situations where some family members can't, don't want to make these kind of changes. Mm -hmm. And how does that play out too? Because, you know, that's definitely a possibility at times. Yeah. And, and, you know, and people have the right to decide that they don't want to, you know, and I think that that's an important part of this is it's not every family is going to choose to reconcile. Not every family is going to choose to be in healthy relationship with one another and people have a choice. They get to do that. And so what I really I actually really prefer knowing that, right? So if a family comes in and we're not sure, like I'll really push them to what are you willing to give and where are you willing to be and how involved are you willing to be? And if, you know, they may say like, we're actually done, you know, maybe it's, we'll pay for it, but that's it. We don't want any conversations and that's heartbreaking. However, that's the truth. And so we can go to the client and go, this is where your family is. And so how are, how can we support you being the healthiest you can be in spite of where they're at with everything? And I think that's a very freeing thing. If we're constantly working to try and reconcile something that can't be reconciled, it's just going to be constant disappointment. And now sometimes families just need the space and they just need to see their loved one like doing well enough that they can open their heart back up. And sometimes there's just, you know, it's just a really sick system. We, I mean, I don't have to tell you about... It's a lot of abuse and there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of things. And so it may not always be wise for reconciliation. There are, you know, when I was at the place I was before, you know, we're not necessarily going to recommend reconciliation with a daughter whose mom trafficked her. Right. Like, so I think there's got to be things to consider, but just an average family. I remember probably one of the more impactful times for me, we had an adolescent at the um, treatment center years ago. And his parents just did not want to be in relationship with him. And he, I just remember him, he was just, he just wanted to get kicked out. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to get kicked out. And so he was just trying to lose his mind. And he was just like, you know, he was like, they don't love me. And I said, that's true. That's true. They don't love you in the way that you want to be loved. That's true. And I, he just fell like just literally it was like he just took his first breath ever and just started crying and he was like thank you everyone's been trying to convince me 
oh no, they do, you know, and all that. And, and it, it was just incredible because it just shifted things for him. And of course, there's so much more that goes into that and so much work and so much work on the family. And, but, it, but it actually, for, he knew, he knew yeah, that they knew. weren't working towards, you know, this big happy family at the end of it. And both parents had moved on. They had new families and he was just kind of left in the middle. And that's really sad. But for us to try and make him feel better in the moment is not the right thing to do. Telling him the truth so he can grieve it and heal from it, you know, that that was was better for him. And so I just that I've just always kind of held myself accountable to that. Let's not try and make a big happy family. Let's take what we have, see what it really is, and we'll do everything we can. But it's also not my job to decide what someone is going to do with their child or their spouse. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's validating the reality of that situation, which although tragic, that's the reality of it. And I think that comes to that piece that that part of recovery, that complexity of balancing acceptance and change. Mm -hmm. Those are really hard to do in in trying to get better and trying to find mental health. And it sounds like this person, you were really able to just validate what he was truly experiencing. And sometimes people just didn't need to see that instead of yeah. some other agenda. This is what it is. Yeah. And although sad, you can now move somewhere with the truth. Right. 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 A lot of us are, have not been allowed to grieve. And I think when we can walk, you know, do that appropriately, it just brings a lot of healing. And so, yeah, he's, he is someone I think about often because, you know, you can get all of us are like, no, like, (laughs) you know, I want to, I want to lead with hope, but a hope that's, that's real and, and not false and and not that just makes somebody feel good in the moment. Are we really making lasting change? And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's important. It's hard sometimes. And and that comes with a treatment provider that is not afraid to do that. To be in that pain because it's so awful to experience that, but it's the reality of it. And, you know, I believe that, you know, sitting in that reality is where we can, we can then do something with it. Yes. We can choose a different path instead of trying to fight against what's there. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, okay. So we're kind of getting to our time here and I've really appreciated this conversation. There's one question I always like to ask at the end and that's maybe there's a a family out there struggling and you could tell them one thing. What would you want them to know? What would you want to tell them? I think, and I'm, there's so many things, but I think the one thing I would say is if at all possible, if you can pause and care for yourself in one way. And of course, my suggestion would probably be counseling, not necessarily just a massage (laughs) or something like that. Right. But if you could prioritize yourself, I think we often don't realize how helping our loved ones comes out of the overflow that we have in our own life. And we feel like it's counterintuitive. Like I've got to just give everything out of this emptiness to my child or my spouse or, you know, my sibling or whatever. And I, I think if we reverse that a little bit and, and if you took care of yourself, you may be surprised the care that can come out of that. That's actually maybe more at rest and more wise and more thoughtful because you yourself are in a better place. And, and I feel like people believe that's counterintuitive. But I, that would be my encouragement. 
is to, to start with you and be able to navigate your own self in the healthiest way possible while also understanding there's a lot going on here. But I think you could potentially be more impactful when you're able to give out of this overflow of health. Oh, thank you, Brooke, for saying that and pointing people in that direction. I, I think that's just so true. And I definitely believe the same thing. So how can people find you if they want to know more about you? Where can they go? Yeah. So I myself do not exist on social media. I've, that is my own <laughs> self-care. I'm on LinkedIn, which so please, and if you want to connect there. But for me and, and the incredible team that I work for and with, we're Lighthouse Recovery tx.com. And then also, I think they're on all the socials too. But yeah, we, I'm just, I'm so grateful for the people I work in the place I work. And uh, yeah, so you can find me through there. I'm sure there's an email somewhere. If you need me, email me. It'll take me two weeks to respond, but I will respond. <laughs> but you will respond. All right. I will awesome. respond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I will yeah. put all those links in the show notes too at theaddictedmind.com so people can can check it out. Brooke, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom, sharing your passion for this work that you're doing. Uh, I just really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It's really kind of you. I've Nothing makes me happier, I think, than talking about this. So thank you for doing that with me. You got it. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addictive Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictivemind.com. So check them out. And if you got a lot out of this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can find us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast, where we will post all the new episodes and any updates. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I know. I know we've been taught that motherhood requires alcohol. I know we've been taught not to question our relationship with alcohol until we've lost everything. And I know we've been taught that if we do dare to examine our relationship with alcohol, we need to head straight to AA and declare ourselves an alcoholic who is powerless to alcohol forever. But what if all that isn't true? That's definitely not my story. I'm Suzanne, the host of the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm an influencer who stopped drinking in January 2020, and since then, I've been telling the truth about motherhood, influencing, alcohol, and sobriety. If you suspect, deep down, that glass, or three, of wine at night might just be making motherhood harder, well, you're right. Come and join me as I chat with other sober and sober curious moms. Let's laugh, cry, and normalize sobriety together all while we reheat our coffee for the fourth time today.